Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. Job. So if uh, you haven't been following along or are newer to our church family here, we have been in a series called the Summer of Wisdom. A lot of people do a lot of things with their summers. They vacation, they get outside, they get tans, you know. We're trying to get some wisdom around here, all right? So uh, we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs thus far, and today we're kicking off into the book of Job. All right, because we believe that this ancient text has wisdom even for our modern lives. Have you ever endured suffering? Let me tell you about a little suffering I endured this week. It's probably divine comedy, but in the hottest week of the summer thus far, my AC at the house went out. And I'm a renter. So I got to call some guy, you know, say, hey, your AC's out. And um, of course, they want to try to fix it as cheaply as possible. And so that usually is going to mean it's going to take a little while. We had to order a special part. We were out of AC for about four or five days. And then the day it gets fixed, wouldn't you know, the temperature drops by 20 degrees. I told you, it's divine comedy. But let me tell you something. As we read the book of Job... I take great comfort in the fact that my suffering is not having AC. It's literally laughable as we look at the suffering of the story of this man, Job. The devastation and the scope of pain that this man went through. As we read through the book of Proverbs a couple of months ago, some of you guys took notice of what it says was the beginning of wisdom. Do you remember? Get wisdom. Get wisdom! And then later the fear of the Lord. So the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. What does that even mean? Well, let's get some wisdom this morning. You guys ready to go to school with me? All right. How many of you have read the book of Job before? All right. How many of you are reading the book of Job right now? Fantastic. I want to invite the church to read through the book of Job together this month, in the month of July. I can't stress enough how important it is for each one of us to really be able to engage and read the Bible for ourselves. Not relying on someone like me to read it for you or interpret it for you or tell you what it means. That way when we come together as a family, we can engage and struggle with and wrestle with the scriptures together in community as people of faith for thousands of years have done. So besides the introduction and the epilogue of the book of Job, which are narratives, 
The rest of the book is actually ancient Hebrew poetry. Did you know that you were reading poetry when you read the book of Job? It's important for us to remember as we read this book, or really any book of the Bible for that matter, that we read it in its literary context. And the context for any passage of the Bible is what? What's the immediate context for any passage that you read in the Bible? It's the book that it's in, right? The Bible was never designed to be read, understood, or interpreted by reading just a few verses or even passages at a time when it's pulled out of or apart from its larger context, the entire book. And just in case you were wondering, the chapters and the verses that we have, they really weren't around until about 500 years ago. So for about 1,500 years, the Christian scriptures, much less the Hebrew scriptures, never had any sort of reference system. Why? Because it was one book. It was one story. You're supposed to read the whole thing. But for us in our modern way of reading things, we like things to be systematized and, you know, organized and we want to know exactly where to get into a story and where it says what verse and there's nothing inherently wrong with that but it can be very dangerous because we take Job chapter 40 verse 2 and he girds up his loins but this is a part of a larger context part of a larger story so let's be careful that we read these stories as they're intended to be read and understood and then interpreted of course all the books together in the Bible come together to tell one story, one meta-narrative that is so grand, so audacious, so awe-inspiring that it's changed the face of human history. So as we read the book of Job this month, I want us to understand what the book of Job first and foremost is. It's a story. It's a story about a guy. It's a story about God. It's a story about incredibly deep and important philosophical and theological questions about the experience of human suffering, the nature of God, and justice. Let's take a look at this introductory video as an overview of the book of Job. The book of Job, it's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite, and the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. 
And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how this section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent, and so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence, and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. 
And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of. Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job doesn't even respond to Elihu, and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent, and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth, or the feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place, and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day, according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours is extremely complex. It's never black and white, like Job and the friends seem to think. Which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile, but more likely they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. 
Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so, Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God, and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. First, God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, this is surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth, all restored. Not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or, like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. So when God asked Job, would you like to run the universe? I always think of uh, Bruce Almighty, right? And uh, what a glorious mess he made when he had all the power to answer everyone's prayers. And I love how he got on Yahoo and just did that in a blink. That was really memorable. And so even though we don't know exactly uh, who wrote Job or when it was written or exactly even what period of history the story is supposed to be taking place, we do know that the audience was this ancient Near Eastern audience with their cultural understanding of the world. And unless we put some effort in, to try to understand a little bit more about their cultural context, about their world, then we're going to really have a lot of problems. Because most of us probably have little to no knowledge of what life was like in the ancient Near East. And so as we read this book, we can easily distort it through our own modern 21st century American cultural lenses, right? And so by way of introduction to Job today, I want us to try to take off these cultural glasses and put on some other glasses. This is what our cultural 21st century American glasses look like. And so as I look at you, everything's blue and orange and big and goofy. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to take these off and put on a different set of glasses and look at the book of Job together. So first of all, it's important to know that the kind of story that's being told here in the book of Job is actually a common story in the ancient Near East. The Bible's not the only story to talk about an innocent man suffering, to wrestle with these types of theological and philosophical and existential questions. And so this, this Mesopotamian culture, many other peoples had literature telling stories like this. And you can actually go and read them. This is a little chart showing you just a handful of other pieces in the surrounding cultures to the audience of Job. And so in these polytheistic religions of the ancient Near East, the Mesopotamian literature of the Sumerians and Babylonians and Egyptians, the Akkadians, 
they have a story that's telling essentially the same thing. An innocent man who suffers. They're probing at the same types of questions. And in the book of Job, for their original audience, the people who would have heard this story of Job, they would have been hearing a very familiar story, but told in some very new ways, revealing a very new and different truth about God, about wisdom, about humanity, and suffering that was very much unlike these other stories that the original audience would have been familiar with. And this graph actually is hard to read and it's cut off. It's only about half of it so, I could, so you can see some of it, but I'll send this along when we post this online, so don't worry about it. One of the main themes in the story of Job and these other Mesopotamian stories is the nature of God. What is God like? And this revolves around this idea called the retribution principle. The retribution principle is what? It basically means you get what you deserve. Have you ever felt like that? In life, you're going to get what you deserve. Have you ever not felt like that? The retribution principle is lacking, right? Because we think, okay, you get what you deserve. That works sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. But in these polytheistic religions of the cultures there, their religious concepts of God were pretty much uniform. It was this idea of the great symbiosis, okay? Let me tell you what that means. So basically, all of these cultures, they had a story. They had a narrative of the origins of humans, the origins of humanity, the origins of creation, just like all cultures of all time do, right? Everybody, everywhere has tried to explain, what are we doing here, right? Okay, so the leading thought in ancient Near East cultures was this idea that the gods had grown tired of having to take care of themselves and they wanted to relax a little bit more, you know, so they could have some more free time in order to, you know, have sex and fight each other. Kind of like modern daytime television, right? So these gods, they decide to make a servant class of beings called humans. And these humans would serve them and bring them food and build temples for them to live in. They would appease their desires through these ritual observances. And in return, the gods would provide for this human class of servants protection from things like sickness and prosperity through things like good weather and plentiful crops, etc. You know, things that humans couldn't control. And so, these cultures viewed gods very much like people. Their understanding of the divine was very similar to their experience of humanity. The gods got hungry. They had sex, they quarreled with one another, and basically they were just like us, just more powerful. And so through this religious worldview, through this lens, through this set of glasses of this symbiotic relationship between humans and gods, humans were always on edge because you could never quite know exactly what the gods wanted. If you... If something bad happened to you, like you got sick, or there was drought, or there was plague, or something that you couldn't control, but it was negative, and negatively affected you, or your tribe, or your people, it was because you didn't do something right. It was because you hadn't appeased the gods quite correctly. You had misstepped in some way, and you never really knew if that was going to happen. And so this worldview, this understanding of religious thought, leads you to understand that basically you've got to perform correctly, otherwise the gods are going to be angry with you. 
And so this great symbiosis with the foundation of all religious thinking in the near, in the near uh, Eastern ancient world. And these gods, they weren't necessarily interested in justice. They were just needy and capricious, whimsical. Could you imagine having a view of God like that and what that would lead you to live your life like? You talk about millennials being angsty. Now we're angsty because the gods are just whimsical. We never know if they're going to throw a bolt of lightning at us or give us drought and so all of our food dies and then we die. And this is the cultural setting that brings us to Job chapter 1. Let's turn there. Hearted reading, isn't it? I tell you, man, anytime you're going through something challenging, just read Job chapter one. It helps us to have a little perspective, right? I mean, wow, what a devastating scene. I mean, this guy's life has just been completely ransacked. The only thing he's got left is his health. Well, if you keep reading, that gets taken too. It's just crazy, like everything gets stripped from this guy. But right out of the gates, we learn something. In the first verse, the author is cutting against the cultural grain of the ancient Near East religious thought, the retribution principle. In the first verse, it says, this man Job was blameless and upright. What's that telling us? He does not deserve what's about to happen. So right off the gate, the book of Job is saying, this God, this one true God is very different then you understand these many gods, these pithy gods, these gods that get upset and quarrel and need to have babies to have other gods to handle other things. Says no, 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 this God is very different. He operates under a very different principle. In fact, as we're told that Job is innocent and righteous, he hasn't done anything wrong. And as we read the story, as it goes on, if you haven't read Job, I would encourage you to read it. But as we read it, we see the cultural, religious thought of the day enter the story through who? The three friends. So the three friends are boggled. They're bamboozled. They're beside themselves. Job, you must have done something wrong. And they're like starting to guess. Like, was it this? Was it that? Oh, no, Job, I know that you did that. You had to have done that. Well, maybe it was this. No way that these kinds of things that are clearly only controlled by the gods could have ever happened unless you deserved it. These three friends are operating under this strict retribution principle understanding of God. That God is going to give you what you deserve. And if you got something bad, you had to have done something evil. And by the way, if you pay close attention to the story with the three friends, probably the best thing that they ever said to Job occurred in the first seven days so this leads us to this courtroom scene, right? The accuser. We have this scene that pops up. Job is set up in the story as he's righteous, he's upright, he doesn't deserve this, and then it transports us into this heavenly spiritual courtroom. It's like we just got blasted into the heavens Judge Judy. You know, it's like, okay, what are, what are we doing here? All right, so we have this character into the story, the Satan. 
And many of us, again, through our modern, big, blue, and orange 21st century lenses, we tend to think that that's referring to Satan, as in like an individual, like John refers to him later in Revelation. That's not necessarily this character, okay? The word here, the language in the original is just the Satan. It's a title. It's not an individual. It's not a personal name, like it's used later in the Bible. So we don't know exactly who this character is other than he's titled an accuser. So he's accusing God of something. What's he accusing God of? The retribution principle. He's accusing him of the great symbiosis. He's accusing him that this Job actually doesn't care for you other than what you can do for him. And he outlines what's he, what he does for him. He says, have you not put a hedge around him? Do you not protect him? Have you not blessed all that he does? And so what's the accusation in this courtroom scene? That God, people don't really love you for you. You're not really worthy of any worship, of any devotion, of any ritual observance by this human class other than what you can do for them. So guess what? Take away what you do for them and we'll see the great symbiosis principle in effect. And God says, bring it on. And remember the point of the story, the audience that's hearing this and reading this for the first time in the near ancient world. They would have thought, this is unlike any God we've ever heard of. So the stage for this story is being set. This case in this courtroom has been heard and the pieces are being arranged like a chess battle. And this ensuing battle of religious worldviews is getting ready to start. The battle of the wisdom of this age, or the wisdom of humans, and the wisdom of God. Which is why Job is a part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It displays the difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And so in this courtroom we see that the accuser actually is granted permission by God to do anything to Job or his livestock or any possessions, very unlike the gods of the day. The gods of the day, they needed permission from other gods to do certain things because they had limited power, limited ability. But this story paints this God as God above all. That even the lowercase g gods or the spiritual beings or however you, the forces, the powers, even the powers that can smite families and kill livestock and bring plagues and the fire from heaven can come down, presumably lightning perhaps. Even those powers have to get permission from the power. Wow, the religious worldviews are being obliterated right now. Really? You mean there's one God that has all power over everything? What does that sound like to you? Paul, in the Athenian arena in Acts 17. Let me tell you about this God that you don't know. So gods, again, I'm going to bounce back and forth between gods, lowercase g, and God, uppercase g, right? The difference in what this story is saying. So stay with me as I use these words interchangeably, try to hang with what I'm saying. So these gods in the ancient religious worldview, they weren't necessarily just, they weren't necessarily responsible for evil or suffering. Ancient peoples just believed that evil and suffering were just woven into the fabric of reality of the cosmos. It wasn't the byproduct of the gods. It was just there. 
But this creates a problem for us as we hear and read this story of Job. Why? Because in Israelite thinking, God could not be so easily removed from the equation of evil and suffering. God was sovereign, and even the accuser here in this courtroom apparently has to have God's direction and permission to do anything. Well, that creates tension for it, doesn't it? That creates a lot of tension and mystery for us to understand who, who is this God? What's he like? And I believe that the story, the author of this story, the editors of this story, they're inviting us into this place where there's tension. They're inviting us into this place where there's a problem. And this is one of the ways in which we have these big glasses on. We read the Bible and we're taught and trained not to question it. But there are so many questions. And the questions are where much of the truth about God is being revealed. And if we don't question the Bible, we say, well, God said it, I believe it, end of... Really? God just had to give permission to the accuser to go wreck this man's life. You don't have a problem with that? That reveals some potentially very interesting and scary things about the nature of God. God, why are you doing this? You've already told us that he doesn't deserve it. Hmm. This tension, this mystery. So this courtroom case, this battle, this chess match, this worldview collide. The basic argument in the courtroom from the accuser is this piety-prosperity matrix of the great symbiosis that people are pious because you're going to prosper them. And that's how we view this symbiosis between the gods who have the power to control things and us who really don't. If I'm pious, if I'm righteous, if I do what's right and what's pleasing to the gods, then they'll be nice to me and they won't smite me. And yet here we have in this courtroom, that is being brought into question. That's what's on trial. And if Job's response in this cosmic chess game, if his response to these tragedies inflicted by this accuser character results in him cursing God, i.e. not being pious, not being righteous, then the accuser has won the case. And by the way, all of the other Mesopotamian literature about the suffering man, they all end by affirming this traditional matrix that you get what you deserve. And the author of Job is getting ready to take us for a ride. So this prosperity piety matrix is still alive and well today as a worldview and understanding of God, is it not? Even for us as Christians. Uh-oh, here it comes. Now I'm jumping out of my like normal looking Mesopotamian glasses and now I've got these glasses on again. I'm looking at y'all. And I'm like, oh, how we have a piety, prosperity matrix of God. And I hope that this image is visually burned into your minds. Because <laughs> I know it is extremely goofy. But hopefully you remember it as what it represents. That we can still think of God today much like our ancient Near Eastern religious worldview thought. That I am going to be good and do what God wants because I want His blessing. I want my life to be better. I want my life to be easier. I want to be richer and wealthier and have nicer things. And I want to suffer less. And by the way, I want a boyfriend already. 
Where is my girlfriend at? Where is my Boaz Lord? Where is the Samson to tear down the walls of my loneliness? It's the same problem. Humanity hasn't changed that much, has it? Over thousands of years, we're still wrestling with the same basic questions. And through this ancient text, some scholars think that Job might have been one of the earliest things written that we have in the Bible. Even this ancient text strikes at the heart of our existence today. There's wisdom for the modern world in the scriptures. Perhaps one of the most popular versions of Christianity today worldwide is what's known as the prosperity gospel. And it is a false gospel that is not true to what these texts teach. It promotes this great symbiosis worldview. It promotes this piety, prosperity matrix understanding of God. That if you aren't rich, if your health is failing, if you aren't happy or you're suffering from depression or mental illness, then you must not be doing something right. God must be angry with you. You must not be spiritual enough. Which is not what Job teaches. And God would bless you if only you would go to church a little more. Give a little bit more of your money. Buy a little vial of holy water to heal all your diseases. If you just had more faith, you would see God's blessing fall down in your life. Pressed down, shaking over to the point that you could not handle it. And it's a pagan worldview. It's a pagan worldview. We believe in little g-gods. And that our piety and righteousness and spiritual living is really for us. Because we want what we want. And in this view of God, in this piety-prosperity matrix, do you see how much angst it would produce or does produce in your life. We're freaked out. We're angsty. We're kind of neurotic types of worshipers because we're always walking around unsure if we're doing it right. Did I have enough quiet times? Do I know enough of the Bible? Have I shared my faith enough? Translate this into our big glasses. We walk around lacking confidence, insecure about where we stand with God because we still view God through this matrix that the Bible is trying to expose and disassemble for us. And I know none of us in here view God this way, but this way you can be prepared to help others around you, right? So the story of Job is trying to really attack, and I would say obliterate, some of our misconceptions of God and justice and suffering. To smash and break apart once and for all this piety-prosperity matrix view of God and reality. The stage has been set for us here in Job 1. The board is set, the hand has been dealt, and the match has been called. The accuser's vision of God, what he's like, what reality is like, 
is what I'm going to call man's wisdom. The accuser's accusation that sets the stage for this match is man's wisdom. And this new vision of who God is and who mankind is before him is the wisdom of the Lord. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to take a closer look at what happens when a righteous Job suffers innocently and then questions God about why he is suffering. And through this ancient story, I hope we can see, embrace, and believe in this new vision of who God really is, that he's altogether unlike us, and that we can have confidence and humility as we approach his throne of grace. That God is not capricious, he's not whimsical, he's not this daytime television lower G kind of God. He's not playing with your life like a mean old guy with a magnifying glass on his ant farm calls humanity. That's not who this God is. And if you feel that way in your heart of hearts, you're worshiping a false God. You're believing and thinking about God in a false way. This God wants to tell you, no, I am grander than that. I am greater than that. And that this loving Father this God that we see through this ancient text is a loving Father that sovereignly and albeit I'll be the first to admit a bit mysteriously at times, He holds all things together and that He's inviting us to trust Him and to become the types of worshipers that He seeks. Worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, not out of selfish ambition. Let's pray. Father, You are beyond what we can understand. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through these ancient texts. Thank you for helping us to see that we're not cool. We're not modern and hip. We're not original. 21st century Americans haven't come up with the first round of questions. But that people for a long time have been wrestling with who you are, how the world operates what are we to do with suffering and evil? And God, I pray that as we embark more and more into your wisdom literature, that you would reveal to us what you're like, what your nature is, who we are before you. And that through doing so, Father, we can be liberated from this great symbiosis, that we can be liberated from trying to please you by our pious actions, but that we can trust in your love and mercy for us ultimately because you have revealed yourself completely and fully in Jesus. That we've been given all that we need for a life of godliness through Jesus. Help us, God, in the times where we revert back to our human worldview, our human wisdom, and we, we wrestle with feeling like you're a big bully. And we didn't deserve this, and we deserve that and haven't gotten it, God. I, I know that I was tempted at times, as silly and stupid as it sounds, to be like, I didn't deserve my AC going out. My kids struggling to sleep in their sweat. And God, as silly as that sounds, we all struggle with this human view of you. And yet you tell us, my sons, my daughters, I'm altogether unlike you. I love you. Trust me. Empower us and strengthen us. Help us to do just that. And help us to show others a big case G God. 
in whom they can have peace, in whom they can have joy, in whom they can have calmness of heart and no anxiety, even in the midst of suffering, because that is the God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.